You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, objects in the mirror may appear larger than they are. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLarger. <laughs> yeah, I'm larger than I am. Or closer than I appear. I don't know. Yes. I can't remember. It's worded differently on different car mirrors. I'll, I'll put that out there. Uh, oh, you know me, I have a gray Honda. So yes. That's how it's worded on mine. Yes, yours is definitely worded that way. So, like, what's new, Bill? Well, uh, remember last year how I was doing the album of a day thing? Yes. Well, I'm still doing it. My friend Ashley and I, who were doing the list together last year, I don't know where she got the list from, but she couldn't find it, so we made our own this year. Uh-huh. So I take one month, she takes another month. The album of the day today, as of this recording, was a band that sold out Madison Square Garden. Now, that's all big wide brush to paint with right so oddly enough i went with you too oh and i have a very weird relationship with you too it's like the weirdest strangest standoff like the more popular they got the more resistant i was to them mm-hmm. that's a weird impact that you two has on a lot of people i think like like i remember when they first started out there were like i remember the video for i will follow yep which is that's a punk song that is a punk rock song. It is definitely Ex- punkier than the stuff that would come later. Yes, I agree yeah. with you. It's got those bells. It's got those ding, ding, ding. And I never really noticed it until my friend Jeremy pointed it out. He goes, why does this have bells? Why, why bells? <laughs> to, to start driving the audience away right away, yeah. early in their career. Right. So back when it was... A thing like back when it was happening, I liked U2 fine whenever they were like the MTV early MTV band. Like the album I listened to today was War, mm-hmm. so that's the one with uh, Two Hearts Beat is one, Sunday Bloody Sundays on that one, uh, New Year's Day is on that one. So you know, they were kind of like angry, you know, yes, which is going to be an anti theme <laughs> later on in the show, hint, hint. <laughs> but they were like, you know angry and young and full of piss and vinegar yes. and then I, like one of the worst things in the world that could happen to a band like you too and the same thing happened with rem later on was they got popular yeah. they also hit at the right time they were just mtve enough just as college radio was shifting a little bit more poppy and it like quintupled their audience at one time Quintripled is a new right. number system I've just invented. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, for there were a few years where you couldn't go anywhere without, literally without hearing a U2 song. If you were in a store, next to somebody in another car, 
just walking down the street yeah. with somebody walking past you like a Walkman on, there was a 50-50% chance you were going to hear you two coming out of one of those things because it was everywhere. It was all over the radio. and Yeah, right around like 1987 with that Joshua Tree album. Yeah. They just like exploded and they were everywhere. And then like not long after that, I don't, I'm not sure if it was like the next album or the album after that, you two, to their credit, I guess, I didn't like it at the time, but I like it now. They said, oh, you really like our old stuff, huh? We're never playing that ever again. <laughs> never, never, never. Was that when they did they pop? S- right, the pop, the big yeah, pop so tour? Yeah, so they did pop yeah. and Zoo Roper, and they got like, and then Bono would come out with these like blue sunglasses and a right. silver cowboy outfit that didn't look like it fit anybody. <laughs> well, it's one of those, like, there's two ways you could look at that part of their career. One is they started to believe whatever their publicists were telling them about how much they were loved and how much people wanted to see them and buy their things and that they were definitely rock stars and how influential they were. Or they were like, hey, watch this. Like, how far? let's see how far into the ridiculous we can go. And it would be some like some trolling everybody type approach to... Right, like Marilyn Monroe in the potato right. sack. Right. And I wonder if, if that isn't the sort of thing that led to them ending up putting their song Songs of Innocence album on everybody's iPod like in 2014. Yeah, I remember it happening. I don't have I've never had an i anything. Oh, so. I have it. I have that album. I have was using iTunes and I had an iPod and I have it. How many times do I listen to it? Zero. <laughs> exactly zero. <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't hate that they put it on there. I was like, cool, free music that I'll never listen to, yeah. but, you know. You know what song has been heard a lot? Which one? The answer to today's very popular and always well-received trivia question. But you don't know the answer. You don't even know the question yet. The question is, what song has been played on the radio more than any other song ever recorded ever? Oh, man, this is an easy one. It's Thunderstruck. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not my final guess. Um, I'll give you a final guess at the end of the show, which will probably still be Thunderstruck. So, this is going to be the week beginning, May the 30th, and whose turn? Your turn? It's your turn to start. It is my turn to start. Uh, May 30th, 1431. Going all the way back, Bill. During the Hundred Years' War. I I remember it well. 19-year-old Joan of Arc is burned at the stake by an English-dominated tribunal in France because she hears voices, and they believe she is a witch. Joan of Arc, whose famous last words were... Is it getting warm in here, or am I crazy? <laughs> and it's the rare time the answer was both. Yeah. Yes. So Ms. of Arc, as she's known in the Bill and Ted films. Yes, Noah's wife. Noah's wife became a figure of legend since 1431, and, and who has had films made about her, has been written into stories whose armor and sword have been used as stories in a series fiction, and has, is a legacy that is carried on and on and on and on. Since 1431, she's not the first, like, superstar person that transcends her culture, but she's certainly one of the earliest. In cinema, I think that is Jane Wielden's finest hour. Can't argue with that. (laughs) Your friend and mine, Mark Twain, actually wrote two books, both called Joan of Arc. He wrote more than two books, but uh, he wrote two books about Joan of Arc. Uh, One of them, the story is narrated as if she is a witch. And the other is narrated as if she is a saint. Which is the one where she encourages the other French people to paint a fence because it's so much fun. You're thinking of the book where she switches out the white thread with the black thread and goes oh. swimming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yep. She was canonized as a saint in 1920. A little late to the party there, uh, Catholic Church. Whatever. Well, I guess uh, it takes time to verify those miracles. They had a lot of people to interview from 1451 all the way up. Three of them. It's not just one miracle. It takes three. It takes three. And it takes a, a nation of millions to hold us back. <laughs> she, did, she did inspire some of my favorite Smith's lyrics from the song Big Mouth Strikes Again. The flames rose to a Roman nose and her Walkman started to melt. And now I know how Joan of Arc felt. Here's a sentence you'll never hear me say. My favorite Smith lyrics. <laughs> Much like you two, they are an acquired taste. Moving on. Before we get to the day proper, I know we like to piss all over your friend and mine, Dan Quayle, but I couldn't let this one go by because this was such a great moment, and we were all here for it. Mm. Uh, May 31st, 2017, your friend and mine, President Donald Trump, sends out this tweet. Despite the constant negative press, Kofife. Words, words to live by. <laughs> uh, yep. uh, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer stated, the president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant, yes. and no further explanation was given during the briefing. Wonderful. <laughs> I like my woman like I like my Kofife. Yeah. Intangible. Intangible. Uh, but the, yeah, the actual day... <laughs> The actual day, May 31st, 1879. Hey, we just mentioned this building. Madison Square Garden. Wow. uh, Originally opens. uh, Named after the fourth president of the United States, James Madison. Did you know that? Because I did not. I didn't know it was named after James Madison either. That's good to know. Have you ever been to Madison Square Garden? I've been by. I've never seen a show there, no. Yeah, much like me, I've been past it, but I've never been inside. I've seen dozens of like videos and photos and other stuff from the different events that they've had in there. It's like any other giant sort of indoor amphitheater. So they do circuses and concerts and. Right. You got to remember, I'm a huge wrestling fan as we will find out later on. Um, Oh, WrestleMania one was, was in MSG, right? A number of WrestleManias were at Madison square garden. The first one was there. I know number 10 was there. There's been a number. That's the house that Vince built as they call it. That was like, home base for the WWF at the time in WWE. That's like where most of their famous matches happened, yeah. I just watched the movie Highlander, and that opens up with the fabulous Freebirds wrestling in Madison Square Garden. I think it's the only part of that movie that was actually shot in New York and not Canada, but uh-huh. but that particular scene is in there, and it's a big place inside, and it was really well suited to wrestling by virtue of how it's set up. It's a big place on the outside, too. Um, <laughs> yes, well, they didn't the, shoot the outside the, in New York. The Madison Square Garden that we're talking about here, you and I, uh, is different from the Madison Square Garden that opened up in 1879. I believe I believe the one that's open now was like built in the late 60s, and that's like the fourth location. I might be wrong. It might be the third. But there's been a, a number of Madison Square Gardens over the years. Well, I'm very happy that it is still known as Madison Square Garden and it's not known as, like, the Quiznos Italian Sub <laughs> Garden or the Bankers and Mechanics Bank of LaGrange Garden or something else that's equally stupid. You know, besides wrestling, I'm also a huge Kiss fan, as you know, as are you. And that was, like, a big landmark in their career is when they sold out Madison Square Garden because... You know, they're all from there. All but one of them was born, like, you know, within a couple of blocks, so to speak, of Madison Square Garden. So, yep, that's America's Arena, so to speak. It is definitely, yeah. That's a good way to describe it, yes. America's Arena. I like that. 
All right, moving on. June 1st, 2009. General Motors, not the oldest car company in America, but one of the oldest, files for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and it's the fourth largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. It was tremendous amount of money that they were in arrears for. Uh, yeah, I remember that. They cut out a lot of their... Because GM was like this big blanket yep. of cars. You know, the Chevy is under GM. So, Pontiac was under GM. Buick was under GM. Also, Opel, Vauxhall, Oldsmobile, Saturn, and a couple of others. Saab was owned by GM at that time. And, and others. It, yeah. yeah. Too many models across too many lines and too many shared platforms and all kinds of poor engineering decisions and a reputation for putting out lousy cars a lot definitely contributed to the to the demise also they also doubled down on trucks and it was 2008 2009 there was a gas crunch prices spiked so people started to buy smaller and smaller cars and there was a program that would come out just after they declared bankruptcy called cash for clunkers where the government would pay oh, yeah. pay people like three thousand dollars to turn in their cars that got mileage under 19 miles per gallon average and they could get that money to put towards another new car provided it got better gas mileage to try and improve the environmental record of all of these vehicles and to bump the cafe standards up and stuff and you mean the kofife standards up <laughs> the kofife yes and it, it helped a lot and then a direct injection of cash from the u.s government from from we taxpayers to keep gm afloat and what they had to do to make it happen was they had to kill off some brands and divest themselves of some other holdings. So they sold off Opel, Vauxhall, Saab. They killed off uh, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, and Saturn. They focused on the GMC trucks, Chevrolet, and Buick because Buick has a giant footprint in China. And they significantly scaled down the amount of plants and stuff that they had in Canada, Mexico, and the United States and streamlined all right. kinds of stuff. I was about to say, I know they didn't kill off Buick. I know Buick still exists. Yeah. But in the United States, it's severely, really, really scaled back. You don't hear about Buick in the United States no. they're, much. They're, they're a huge brand in China. A huge, right. way bigger than they are here. In the U.S., I think there are only three Buicks that are for sale. The little <laughs> SUV one, there's like a, the Riviera and like one other one, and that's it. Oh, I thought you meant three, like one, two, three. That's it. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Three models of Buick, not three, well, three they actual really cars. Well, they really that one back. They did, yeah. So how do you keep the demand up? All right. June 2nd, 1977. Uh, New Jersey allows gambling to be legalized in Atlantic City. Uh, that was only the second like place in America where gambling was legalized, the first being, of course, Las Vegas. Right. And certainly a nice place like... The shoreline of New Jersey is not where anywhere that there's going to be like mob influence or organized crime that's involved in a giant gambling operation that starts up. It's going to be super above board, just like early Las Vegas was. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. You ever been to Atlantic City? I've never been to Atlantic City. No. I have not either. I remember my parents talking about it because we had a cousin that lived in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Las Vegas is very glamorous, and Atlantic City is less so, I guess. <laughs> I've often heard it described as it has a beautiful row of hotels by the beach, and then the rest of it looks like that Italian movie, Fight in the Bronx 2044, that came out in, like, 1986, which uh -huh. is a post-apocalyptic car smash <laughs> movie. So the dichotomy of the amount of money that's shoved into the gambling side versus the rest of the city is glaring at best. Well, let me tell you something, Mr. McLaurin-Juge. 
I went to Las Vegas in 1997, uh, and I drove out there. I was out there for a wedding. So my friend, you know, he was busy with the family and all that. And I would just, like, go, like, walking around and stuff. I was walking home probably about 1 or 2 in the morning, and this Volkswagen bug just, like, pulls over, like, in front of me, rolls down his window. He says, you're not from around here, are you? And I was like, I was like, How can no, you tell? yeah, which is a, a, a really weird way to open up a conversation. But he says to me, he goes, you don't have to get in. In fact, I don't want you to get in, but wherever you're going, get there because where you are is called the naked city. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, no, you don't understand. It's called the Naked City because if you're not wearing a bulletproof vest, you may as well be walking around naked. Yeah. This is not the place to be walking around by yourself at one o'clock in the morning. Wherever you're going, get there and get there fast. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then the next day, somebody came up to me and asked me if I wanted to buy crystal meth. And I, I didn't even know what to do. With, like, I didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, I don't... I. I kind of want to say yes, because right. I want to have a story. <laughs> right, right, right. I've been to Vegas twice, both times for work, both times after 2010. So it's uh-huh. like geriatric Disneyland out there now. Um, yes. And I didn't go into the skeezy parts of the city. At least I got that going for me I'm, when right. I've been out there. I went to the part of old Vegas where like the cowboy guy, neon oh, sign the thing side. is. Yeah, the, and, the Fremont experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did that. Oh, and yeah. then I, I stayed on the strip part. Yeah. It's like a pleasure prison. Yeah, you got like three miles of strip that you're pretty safe in, pretty much. And then you can wander off and be murdered, like Hostel 3. Yes. The big draw to Vegas is gambling, and I'm not a gambler. I've been in a casino to gamble on purpose one time with my dad right before I went overseas to go to school. And he's like, well, take the whole night's receipts from the restaurant, run it up in, you know, the casino down in Connecticut, and I'll give you all the money. And I was like, all right. We had like 800 bucks. And then now SpongeBob narrator voice four hours later. I'm tipping the valet parking guy with the $2 that I brought with me wrapped (laughs) around register receipts because we don't have anything else. It's not my thing. My dad loved it. And I just, I never got it. I never understood it. It's like video games, but there's no video game. It's like putting the quarters in part, but then nothing happens, you know? You hand the valet, like, two lemons. Here you go, my good man. The slots were good to me tonight. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Yeah, exactly. And here's a cherry. What do you got for June the 3rd? June the 3rd, uh, 1959, President Eisenhower, in a showing off American technology and probably terrifying the Russians, bounce bounces a message to the Canadian premier, a guy named Diefenbacher, off the moon. He uses the moon as a reflector to send a radio message to the Canadian prime minister, which I don't know what the message was, but it was probably something like only crazy Canadians eat poutine or the Toronto maple leaves suck. You know, I really liked him Horton Donuts. But it, it was a proof of concept that shows not only that you could bounce a signal off the moon, which is 250,000 miles away. It's a long distance to travel. Sure and bring is. it back down so that it can be received. But you could do it on a smaller scale with satellites and lower power and satellites that are ge- in geosynchronous or in uh, low Earth orbit. And it's helped to build the technology that we would use for moving television signals and radio signals and communications all around the world. Pretty neat. Uh, those are the days. Whatever uh, competing with the Russians was just a space race instead of... Redacted. Yeah, the race started like a year earlier when the Russians were like, hey, 
Hey, Dimitri, watch this. I've made this little ball. See these antennas? Watch, I'm going to put in space and it's going to beep incessantly. We'll make America's goods go crazy. And they did that, and then we went crazy. And that literally started off the the space race, something as big as a volleyball. And a year later, we were bouncing things off the moon. Sputnik kind of looked like that experiment where you grow a potato with the toothpicks going through it. (laughs) Yes, it does. I'm sure that was the Damn those Russians and their potatoes. <laughs> Wait, this is like baby vodka. Uh. <laughs> All right. So whereas Russians seem to be hyper-focused on potatoes, America is hyper-focused on Elvis Presley. And on June the 4th, 1992, the public voted three to one in favor of of an Elvis postage stamp, and we had our choice. I remember this, too. We had our choice, and we could get either the fat Elvis or the young Elvis. <laughs> well, and, uh, te- technically, it was young Elvis and old Elvis, but everybody called it fat Elvis. <laughs> everybody did it, even yes. me. Guess which one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the young Elvis stamp, a 29-cent stamp, made its way, and it's held to onto by collectors. The American Trilogy Elvis did not make it to the stamp. I remember they sold out for months once those stamps were released, too. Like, you couldn't oh, yeah. get them. Yep, and uh, it, it's estimated that 124 million of these stamps are held onto by collectors. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, so many of them didn't even go into circulation, right? Yeah, they just stayed out there. It's like, no wonder the price of postage keeps going up. <laughs> People oh, are hoarding stamps. The stamp that won, Elvis is wearing kind of like a, a yellowish gold suit jacket, black tie, yep. the classic Elvis hair, leaning into the microphone. And uh, the old stamp was him sitting on the toilet with blood in his eyes. <laughs> I, I remember it was it was him in like the white jumpsuit, but it was like from the chest up. Yes. And looking like he was side-eyeing some big plate of tacos. Like, right outside the stamp, like, oh, I'm going to be eating all tacos in about five minutes. Get me that deep fried pickle. Oh, I'm going to put some mayonnaise on those. You know, people don't generally put mayonnaise on tacos, but Elvis, he's the king, and he does. (laughs) And wrapping it up on the 5th, what do we got? (laughs) Hey, neither fat nor young. June 5th, 1988, the longest champagne cork flight, which I'll explain in a minute, is measured at 177 feet and 9 inches, or 58 some odd meters long. For those of you who are 54 meters long. I'm not sure you have to explain that, Jeff, but go ahead. Okay, so it was a guy, named, Hei- it was a guy named Heinrich Medicus, who's from the United States, who he ejected a cork from an untreated and unheated champagne bottle standing 1.2 meters from level ground. So he's holding the bottle in his hand yep. and shoots the cork, and it goes 107. 107- 177.9 feet, 177 feet, nine inches in a winery in Woodbury, New York, Woodbury Vineyards, New York in 1988. And you wouldn't think that there would be competitions for this kind of foolishness, but see if you could guess where I'm reading about this. Of course there's a competition for it. This is America, dude. We can't, we compete for everything. It's true. And remember that we talked about the guy who had like 525 world records. Yes. This is not one of them, but it's in the same book. So this is a Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, so it's it's verified. Okay. Uh, much like uh, our friend Miss of Ark and her three miracles. So, Can you imagine being somebody that works for Guinness? It's like, all right, I'm going to shoot this champagne cork. It's like you're going to fly all the way out there. Like, oh, God, this better be good. You know? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a, better not be one of those kids with coins on his elbow again. Oh, that's such a pain <laughs> in the ass, right? Now, my friend Joe and his wife Kim lived on this third floor apartment in, uh, in New Bedford, across the street from St. Anthony's Church, probably the biggest church in the city. Yeah. And every New Year's Eve, it was our tradition to go out on the balcony, shake up the champagne bottle, and fire the cork at the church trying to hit the clock. Nice. Jerry get it? Never, we never <laughs> even got to the church, but it was tradition. This year, we're going to do it. This went on for years. Wow. I know that uh, when I learned, I went to a class when I was in college. It was like a yeah. seminar on buying inexpensive wine. I don't know why it was one of those cultural things that students do, which basically turned into a giant wine drink-up. Not, not surprising for college students either. And I learned that when you open a champagne bottle, it shouldn't be and then splooge all over the place. It should be the phrase that was used. It should sound like the sigh of a satisfied woman. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's exactly yeah. the noise that I made. <laughs> and I was like, that's a great description. And then I drank the bottle of champagne that I did not open in a way that sounded like the sigh of a satisfied woman. Uh, I remember my ex-girlfriend... She would lean over in the bed and she'd whisper in my ear. <laughs> That's how I knew we were in love. All right, so let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. May the 30th, 1955. Jake the Snake Roberts, professional wrestler. One of my favorites of the, of that era, or, or of any era, actually. He was a favorite of mine, too. He wasn't the first guy that I remember being super charismatic. He was always super interesting to watch. It was just at the right time. I think I was in like maybe eighth, seventh and eighth grade when I started really watching what would become the WWF for real. And he was one of the bigger stars then who blew up the gimmick with the snakes in the bag and the throwing the boa constrictor on the dude was astonishing for me. A couple of things about our friend Jake. You look at him. Jake the Snake Roberts was not built like a wrestler he wasn't a muscular guy he was he kind of had what we describe these days as a dad bod he looks like your uncle that lives that you don't know you're not really sure where he lives but it's probably in an apartment (laughs) (laughs) and you know he has some kind of job but you don't know what it is and he comes to all the family picnics and stuff but he never brings anything that's what he that's kind of what he looks like yeah but even though he didn't look really intimidating his promos, the way he talked and the way he used his body language and his eyebrows when he talked and all that stuff, he was so menacing yeah. that it, 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 you feared him. You know, he, he sold himself that well. I got to meet him and I told him, I was like, hey, man, best promos in the business. And he said, oh, thanks, because his voice <laughs> is just completely shot. <laughs> yeah. And another thing is... Uh, Uh, A modern-day wrestler who went by the name of Dean Ambrose at the time, he was doing a a small program with Jake. You know, Jake was just doing a cameo. And Jake, you know, DDT'd him and then put the snake on top of him. And this guy, he was a young wrestler. He was so excited to being on the receiving end of Jake's wrath that as the snake is crawling on him, you could just see him smiling. He couldn't control himself. It was a really really funny moment. Moving on to the 31st. May 31st, 1960. Sort of a second banana actor, comedian named Chris Elliott. 
who's mm. you may not remember had his own show called Get a Life on Fox Network, which was kind of funny. Yep, I remember. And he was also a, a longtime skit guy on the David Letterman show. Yes, I was actually going to bring him up on David Letterman. There was one episode he came out and he was impersonating Marlon Brando. <laughs> and he kept telling Dave that he was he wanted to be known as Marlon Brando from that point forward. And he was doing the voice of Marlon Brando the whole time. And then Dave just goes, why do you want to be called Marlon Brando? And Chris Elliott stopped talking like Marlon Brando for one second and goes, because I look just like him. And then went back to acting like Marlon Brando. It was hilarious. Yeah, he's a funny, funny guy. He's a funny writer, too. And his show, Get a Life, didn't live long enough to get the kind of cult following that it should have because it was very funny. The premise was very funny. He was like a 35-year-old paper boy who still lived with his parents who were trying desperately to get him to grow up and leave the house. I think a lot of maybe Gen X and millennials might remember him also as Whoopi from There's Something About Mary. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) Yes, that was he was very good in that, too. All right, moving on to June the 1st. So here's... Here's where, I I hate saying this sentence, but I almost have to. Here's where I start to feel old. Uh, June the 1st, 1996, my favorite superhero, Spider-Man himself, Mr. Tom Holland. Oh, yeah. Nice. 1996, huh? Yeah. It's funny that the guy that's playing Spider-Man, my favorite superhero, was born the same time I was really heavily reading the comic books. He was born after I was already married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. He's like, I like to think of him now as Spider-Boy. Yeah, I like him as Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He's a really cool, like, dude, like I've, I've heard interviews with him on different podcasts and stuff like that. And it's off-putting because he's British. But you don't realize he's British because he does a great American accent as Spider-Man. But then you hear him talking. It's like, oh, well, that's off-putting. He's definitely not. He sounds like, is he playing a character? But it's no, it's the other way. He's very good. He was very good in the Spider-Man films and the Avengers. Yeah. Did you see uh, in the spring they had a movie version of the video game Uncharted and he was in that? Did you see that? That came out and that hasn't hit the streaming services that I have yet. But... I will probably watch that one because I liked un- the Uncharted game. Uh, I did not enjoy the Uncharted video game, so I'm not sure if I will see it. But I do like Tom Holland as Spider-Man. I hope they use him going forward. The end of the most recent Spider-Man movie was kind of ambiguous, like whether that was the end or, the- or not. Anyway, moving on to the second. June the 2nd, go ahead. June 2nd, 1955, SNL writer and comedian Dana Carvey. I don't know how you say is most famous for. He was on Saturday Night Live for a long time. Yes. Did his turn out in the films as part of the cast of Wayne's World, playing Garth. Right. I, I think that's probably where most people would say they recognize remember him, him from. Yeah, if they weren't watching Saturday Night Live in like the 90s and early 2000s. He also had a very short-lived uh, sketch comedy show of his own called The Dana Carvey Show, which I think lasted two and a half episodes. They went to commercial and never came back, I think, at the third episode. He had a film called The Master of Disguise, which... Yes. I think was written by those like AI robots that you sometimes read about <laughs> on BuzzFeed. It doesn't make any sense and it's not good. That's what's really like odd about Dana Carvey is he has no middle. Like yeah. Wayne's World, that was a spectacularly uh, you know popular movie, is stuff that he did on Saturday Night Live with you know the church lady, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very, very popular. And then he had that TV show that flunked, and then turtle. Turtle, the master of disguise. Like, people talk about that movie 
I think people that like that movie like it for like the same reason why people watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show and The Room, where it's just like, yeah. it's so bad that it's hilarious to watch. Every, yeah. yeah, every decision in the making of this film was wrong. Yes. <laughs> and here it is. Here's the proof of it. Yeah, it's like the elephant's foot at the bottom of Chernobyl of movies. It sucks. <laughs> and it it's fun to watch with a bunch of people because it's not it's not funny at all. And you, oh, you and all your friends, it doesn't matter who you or all your friends are, are funnier than anything that's going on in the film while you're watching it. <laughs> I'm tempted. I'm tempted to watch it. Okay, so the next day, June the 3rd, 1927, a man by the name of Boots Randolph, whose name you may not recognize. I don't. (laughs) Boots Randolph is going to be best known as the composer of the song Yakety Sax. Well, what the heck song is Yakety Sax, Bill? That's the question I was looking for. Everybody best knows Yakety Sax as, quote unquote, the Benny Hill song. Oh, yes it is. So I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to give you the clip. This song. Huh? See, everybody knows Uh, that. You know what I'm going to say? Best song ever. That's right. (laughs) So, yep, so in case you were ever wondering, yep, that song is called Yakety Sax, and that song was written by Boots Randolph, and his birthday is June the 3rd, 1927. And he he was around for a long time. He passed away in 2007. I'm sure they played that song at his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to a funeral where they handed out kazoos before. All right, moving on. June 4th, 1936, American actor Bruce Dern, who is still acting well, he's not acting right now, but he's still acting today. He was in The Hateful Eight. He might be. And his career goes all the way back into the, like, 1950s. Wow. He's been around for a long time. He was the man who shot John Wayne in The Shootist and became the most hated man in America uh, because of that role in that film. I remember him best from his role as the last scientist, the one that kills off his, his compadres in an orbital spaceship in a film called Silent Running. That was the first, like, sort of super environmental science fiction film that I ever saw as a kid. Oh, that's like early seventies, right? Yeah, nineteen. It was it was what the one that John Dykstra wrote and directed and did it right after he did two thousand one, oh, right I'm... before he did Star Wars. Oh wow! I'm looking at his IMDb right now. I don't know who he was, but he was in the movie Monster. Charlie Theron and Christina Ritchie. Huh? Okay. He must have been one of the Johns that got killed. He he more than likely was. He's been in tons and tons of stuff. He's played villains. He's played heroes. He's generally character actor. Uh-huh. So you've seen him in more things than you realize. It's when you start to say, oh, my God, there's Bruce Dern. And he'll be on the screen for five minutes in a two-hour movie. You're like, oh, what was he doing there? He was, he was there. And wrapping up the birthdays, uh, a personal hero of mine, actually. June the 5th, 1941, a man by the name of Spalding Gray. Uh, Spalding Gray was an author, an actor, a writer which is also an author, I guess, and, uh, and a monologist, which is a, an interesting career choice to have. Spalding Gray, I first saw him, my brother was watching a movie. The entire movie was this man who kind of looked like he could be Paul Stanley's father. He's sitting behind a desk talking, and that's the whole movie. And that sounds like a very boring movie, doesn't it? It does. But it's not because he's so talented at telling the story that you just drags you in. Yeah. 
Um, if if you need an example of like what it was like to watch, the one that I remember most from him is Swimming to Cambodia, mm-hmm. is that every single NPR radio show sounds like what he did in Swimming to Cambodia before NPR shows were like they are. Like, he provided this really strange storytelling model that no one was doing before him, and everybody started doing after. I see, yeah. That's a... That's- yeah, well, whenever people say NPR now, they all think of the the Saturday Night Live model of NPR where everybody is just talking. Well, they still do I, that, but they, yeah. they just tell stories. But that's, yeah. not how Sp- <laughs> that's not how Spalding Gray talked. He was no. he was very animated. Um, he did a number of monologue movies. I own a bunch of them. I uh, actually got to see him perform live, I want to say twice. It might have been three times. Wow. It was very entertaining to go see. Local boy, too. He was from Barrington, Rhode Island. Oh, I didn't realize he was from that part of New England. Cool. Cool guy. Like I said, he he looked like he could be Paul Stanley's father, but I think if he was to actually, like, perform music, it would just be... The worst song ever. Oh, Jeff. This is one of those weeks. (laughs) It it is. It's a Bill picks the worst song every week. So, So, Bill... What have we got this week? Now we've now admittedly we've started the show talking about U two, which it can be polarizing for our audience. Yes. So we've got to come up with something extra special for worst song ever. Okay. Uh, so my old friend Greg just started listening to the show recently, and he was messaging me, and he was talking about the worst song ever segment. He goes, "I really kind of like I'm on, I'm on two halves." He goes, "I appreciate the fact that you do so much research and you get to learn about all these bands, but man, I don't know how you could stomach half those songs." <laughs> we do it because we love you all. So today was an interesting event for me because the song I'm talking about this week is called Up, Up and Away by a band called The Fifth Dimension. I just thought that they were like a one-hit wonder because it's such a silly song. Before we get into the dive, let's just play this clip because this song is so misplaced. Just listen to this. Okay, so this song came out in 1967. This song won the Grammy, Jeff. The Grammy for Song of the Year in 1967. Yep, the year Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out. Exactly, Uh, right. It's like, were there no other songs? Were you unaware that I'm a Believer came out in 1967? This is the Song of the Year? Here's the reason that that is. The audience for the Grammys cut their teeth on popular music in, like, 1942. Apparently. And that's why they voted. Even today, Grammy Award winners generally aren't picked by an audience of the audience that buys records at the record store, buys songs at iTunes, or listens exclusively to Spotify. It's from journalists, and it's from adults, and it's from other things that are not technically the audience. It's not like the Golden Globes or the American Music Awards, you know what I mean? So... The academy that picks it is a bunch of musicians and producers and record company executives and others, critics. So they're out of sync, I think, and always have been with the music that's popular at the day. That said, 
This song sold like nine trillion mm. records. I know. And the, what's funny about this is, like I said, it comes out in 1967. Now, there is a trend that happens a lot that there's a, a, a music resurgence for something that happened 20 years prior. So like when we were in school in the 80s, the, a lot of stuff from the 60s became popular. So it kind of stands to reason that this song and basically almost everything else that the Fifth Dimension did, it sounds like stuff from the 40s. It sounds like it would be right at home with like, don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. Rock and roll had been around, like Bill Haley and the Comets came out in like what, 55, right? So rock and roll was around for at least a decade, 12 years when this song came out. And this song is, you know what this song is not? This song is not rock and roll at all. There is no danger or anything. This is not this is so safe. This is... <laughs> it is. It's known as a subgenre called... That came to be known as sunshine pop or soft pop. So it's it's already like, you know, there's pop and then there's Debbie Boone, right? Soft rock, uh, soft pop. And and this is like that. And it's like the Mamas and the Papas. Like if you listen to the Mamas and the Papas, they sound like a, a lot like this band. And I, I'm reluctant to call the Fifth Dimension a band because they're not. They're a vocal group who were backed up by the yes. Wrecking Crew, the Wrecking Crew who did a bunch of the music for the Monkees' first couple of records. And the, um, the Wikipedia, the list of people that have been in the fifth dimension needed its own subpage. That's how many, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. The the notable one for me was Marilyn McCoo, and I remember her because she was like the host of Solid Gold. Yeah, you know why I remember her, don't you? For this the second or third year that that ran. No, why do you remember Marilyn McCoo? Because see, I did not know this about. I had no idea who did this beautiful balloon song. The Fifth Dimension, most famously, are the ones that did the Age of Aquarius slash. Yeah, let, let the, the sunshine, sunshine in. in. Yes, that's that's them. And the funny story how uh, how they got that is that one of the guys in the band, Billy Davis Jr., had dropped his wallet in the subway. So it was either Marilyn McCoo or Florence LaRue or something else that rhymes. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, she told them, forget it, you, that, that wallet's long gone if you lost it in the subway. But at some time later, he got a phone call from, you know, some dude. He goes, hey, I found your wallet. He goes, so Billy uh, Billy Davis wanted to give him, like, a reward. He goes, no, you know, I, I don't need a, a reward. He goes, well, I'll tell you what. My band is, or my group is performing. We'll give you tickets, and you can come to the show. So this guy went to the show and absolutely loved it. He goes, oh, you guys were fantastic. He goes, now that you guys, uh, now that you gave me tickets to your show, I'd like you to invite you to my show. And he was... You know, one of the producers for the the Broadway production of Hair, oh, which was like the Hamilton of its day. You couldn't get tickets to Hair. Yeah, my my mom wore that soundtrack out when I was a kid. Right. You know, the Fifth Dimension. They went to go see Hair on this guy's uh, ticket, and whenever they heard that song, you know, um, Age of Aquarius, they're like, "Oh, we got to record this. This is a hit." And it's true. I mean, if I mean, a lot of people have covered that song. But the one that you know is the fifth dimension, you know. And uh, they also did, as I alluded to earlier, another song, one of the banes of my existence. Uh, months ago, we did, we talked about the song "Billy, Don't Be a Hero." Remember that? And I established I, I established that having your name in a song 
is just like bully fodder whenever you're a kid. Your friends and mine, The Fifth Dimension, have a song called The Wedding Bell Blues, which goes like this. Over and over and over again, people would sing that to me all the time. (laughs) Well, I've always sort of liked this song, and I remember it. No, you don't! I I remember it way more from either the Electric Company or, like, the really early Sesame Street. Because it was was done on one of the little kid shows that I watched when I was a little, little kid. And I remember it from that more than I remember it from being on the radio. But I do remember it as I got older, hearing it on sort of pop radio, or especially since the 1980s or so forward on oldies radio where all of the sunshine pop like it doesn't go to die but it's that's where it goes to like live out the last of its decades <laughs> you know so that's like the fifth dimension that's the farm and, in maine that you're right your exactly mom sent the dog yeah right exactly yes it's like the fifth dimension <laughs> the turtles uh the mamas and the papas like they don't get played on rock and roll radio anymore and they don't get played on pop radio anymore that's where they go but come on the turtles by comparison Oh, I mean, my God, the they're like the are... Sex Pistols compared to this oh, band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're like Gigi <laughs> Allen compared to this. Yeah. Actually, well, I mean, they were a band band, but, I mean, the, the music is light and airy, and it's Because it's not a balloon, cool. Jeff. It's, it's an airy yes. balloon. Yeah. It's a it's... big, beautiful balloon. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite like Archie's level sugary, but it's close, you know? It's not... Nothing is funnier, though, than, like, go, go and watch the YouTube video of them performing this, because... Uh, they were known as boy. We've got a lot of themes going on this week. Their their music genre was came to be known as champagne soul. Yeah. And this song is, it just isn't. <laughs> no, it's not. This the song has less has less soul than a, a a hotel full of atheists. Yeah. Yeah. It is neither champagne nor soul. It's like Rhode Island. It's neither a road nor an island. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the the photos from them at the time. Like they had a this very distinctive look. They looked like they were minted in 1967. But just before the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, they looked like a time capsule of like that one week before, or the dinosaurs looking up, you know, at the comet that's on its way. And right. It, they look like they raided. But they got caught halfway through. They raided the Lost in Space costume room. And then on their way out, they grabbed, like, the Shakespeare costume that they were closest to and put all those on at once. And for comparison, we make a lot of references to Nirvana's Nevermind album being the comet that destroyed the heavy metal dinosaurs. But, like, Fifth Dimension and their ilk were wiped out by the other comet known as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Odds Club Band, for sure. They definitely had a harder time staying on the charts. They didn't put out anywhere near as much music as the Beatles did, you know, or the, like, as radio format shifted to Beatles, Rolling Stones, and the Kinks and all that sort of stuff. But, well, they I had mean, to change. They had to change with the time, which is why they did the, like, the hippie stuff there, yeah. Yep. This song, Up, Up, and Away, was written by a, a super-duper famous songwriter named Jimmy Webb, who, I don't oh, know... God. Who, yes, who's been on our The Worst Song Ever list before for this dreadful MacArthur Park. Also once sung by Marilyn McCoo. Oh, yeah. it, recorded, it was recorded by Marilyn McCoo as, as a solo song. And who was famous for writing, like, pop country for Glenn Campbell. It's, it's crazy the way that all the different pieces came together for this song and this vocal group at the time. Again, it created that weird subgenre of music that galloped out of the gate and then 
tripped over its own feet and then kind of fell over and then rolled over itself and then ceased to exist and within the space of like five or six years. All right. You know what song did not cease to exist? The answer to our trivia question, our very popular and always well-received trivia question, what was or what is, as of this recording, the most played song on the radio? Oh, okay. I am going to go out of my comfort zone and drift directly into like 90s pop where radio was everywhere, more so than it is now, and I'm going to say Whitney Houston's take on... I will always love you. That is a very, 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 very good guess. That song is number four, and that song is actually the like the most recent song in the top ten. Oh, okay. Uh, the number one song, the band that has the number one song, is also the only band that has two songs in the top ten. Okay. And that would be The Police. The song played the most times on the radio as of this recording is The Police's Every Breath You Take with an estimated 15 million plays. Oh, my gosh. Yep. And Songs nine, about serial stalkers. Yep. And number nine is probably another song about serial stalkers. Uh, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic with about 9 million plays. There it is. Number one song on the radio, The Police. I, you know what? I was I'm pretty excited that I was that close. I'm not going to yeah. lie. I'm 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 wearing this like it's a win, even though it's not. Oh, it's not a win. <laughs> I know. I know, but I'm still I still feel like I got the answer right even though I know I didn't because I was so close. This is like lawn darts. It's just outside the hoop. Yeah, it's like a hand grenade. Right, but nobody got it in the hoop either. I just got it closest to the inside of the hoop. Okay, so that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Make sure you spread the word and tell all your friends about the Twibbly podcast. Dan Quayle never listened to Twibley, and look what happened to him. <laughs>